Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, and I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and passionate about helping more women to understand and accept their amazing ADHD brains. After speaking to many women just like me, and probably you, I know there is a need for more health and lifestyle support for women newly diagnosed with ADHD. In these conversations, you'll learn from insightful guests, hear new findings, and discover powerful perspectives and lifestyle tools to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm, and purposeful life wherever you are on your ADHD journey. Here's today's episode. Today, I am absolutely delighted to invite on as guest, Rachel Gao, PhD, Dr. Rachel Gao. And she is a child neuropsychologist and a neurodevelopmental specialist with the expertise in ADHD and associative learning and behavior differences. And in addition, she's also a registered nutritionist and the author of a fantastic book that's been on my desk for several years now. It's Smart Foods for ADHD and Brain Health, How Nutrition Influences Cognitive Function, Behaviour and Mood. So Rachel, welcome to the podcast. I'm just delighted. We've met in person. I've d- I came and did your event. I've seen how knowledgeable you are and I've been waiting for, for such a long time to get you here. So welcome. Thank you very much, Kate. And it's a real pleasure to be on this podcast with you today. I'm excited. I've been excited and waiting as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much to talk about. I've got, you know, a whole page of notes to ask you because what you cover is so big and so um, important for ADHD, but also for brain health, for our mood, our nutrition, our gut health. And you've really dedicated your career to this. And I know, you know, how much studying that you have done, um, how much work on the ground you've done, but also as a, as a parent and also the future of the future of your career, which is also, you know, fascinating, which we'll come to. But I guess just to sort of start from, um, you know, we've sort of listed all the amazing accreditations that you've got with your, your career so far. But from a personal perspective, how come ADHD has been such a big purpose for you? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a good starting point as well. And I think first and foremost, I am a mum, because it's really important to talk about ADHD from my personal perspective, as well as my professional, you know, 14 years of research and training, which I'm sure we'll come to. But first and foremost, I was a mum. My son was diagnosed with both ADHD and dyslexia as a small boy. And that came as, um, I wouldn't say a surprise, But I certainly had heard of dyslexia, um, but I didn't know anything at all about ADHD. And it has a funny name as well, you know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So I think we begin to research things, don't we, as soon as it affects us or impacts us on a personal level. And I always describe myself, and I say this in my book, that I became um, a better investigator than an FBI agent because I was all over it. Yeah. You know, I was luckily, you know, the internet was out then and I was Googling and talking to people and attending, you know, whatever events and seminars that I could at the time. Um, How my, long ago was this? Yeah, of course. My son is 31. Um, yeah, so I had him as a very young mum, which was amazing because I get to love him for longer. 
Um, but, you know, I was adopted myself, which I briefly mentioned in the book as well, at six months of age. So, and I had a bit of a rocky road, you know, early on in life. I, it wasn't the best kind of environment, if you like. It was a different environment. So I was kept by my biological mother for six months until she could keep me no more. We were in a mother and baby home uh, for single parents. She was Irish Catholic, you know, typical kind of cliche story. And um, she sort of tried to keep me, um, but there just wasn't the support network in in place at all her parents had kind of more or less disowned her uh, for having a baby out of wedlock all the rest of it I felt being adopted there was always this gaping hole in my heart that I needed to fill um, and sort of not knowing where you're from is so alien you know most people take it for granted they can look at their mom and dad and they can recognize themselves their traits their hair color their eye color their height whatever I had none of that there was a kind of like a genetic mismatch with in my adoptive family as well so they had adopted children uh, an older brother from a different family uh, and then myself who's half Irish and then they'd actually gone on to biologically have their own child so it's a very sort of weird dynamic and I felt there was a genetic mismatch and also my brothers were very gifted and I was kind of the the only sort of female and the middle child and I was kind of very much overlooked and um, almost kind of sort of I wouldn't say neglected that's the wrong word but kind of maybe yeah maybe some some neglect in, in terms of like attention and investment and nurture so it was a rocky situation although there were happy times I ended up leaving home around 15 and living with my best friend uh, yeah it was a struggle and hence why I ended up having a teenage pregnancy because you know I was a child when I left home and you know, that increases risks for so many adverse outcomes you know and luckily for me I became pregnant so I always say luckily um, and that was the most wonderful gift that could ever have happened to me and my son's name uh, actually means gift from God um, and when I found out that he was going to arrive into this world three days before my birthday I was like to me it just made sense and it just kind of I was like I'm definitely keeping my beautiful little boy and that's what I did and but anyway, that's a long, long version. No, it's not. It's really powerful because I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm connecting dots in my head and I'm understanding, you know, the, the drive, the really innate deep drive to rectify, I guess, sort of past generational patterns and to, to give him maybe what you didn't have. And then that devotion that you've had to learning about ADHD and yeah, I truly believe these things that, you know, our children are there for our biggest lessons and they are there to teach us. Absolutely. I mean, I've learned more from my son than I could ever have imagined to the point where it completely shaped and transformed my life uh, or transport me into a completely different world, you know. And um, we, we, you know, we talk about that and my son is extremely proud of me and he remembers us as this like, single family unit in a one-bedroom council flat you know where I was for three years and I swore to myself I made a promise when he was born that I was going to make sure that he had the best possible environment growing up and that I would do my utmost and everything to ensure that he had every opportunity and by you know and I did you know we, we moved out there three years later I bought 
a property at 25. And what were you doing then out of interest? So you Because you weren't yeah. doing what you're doing now no, then, were you? Not at all. I was a lettings manager. And I, I met some really phenomenal people who were very inspirational as well. And yeah, and my son was actually at private school around the corner at a school called Abercorn Place in St. John's Wood, literally five minutes from the office. You know, in the end, I was traveling from Southwest London to Northwest London, arriving at eight o'clock before my bosses. You know, my son was dropped off at breakfast club. I was opening up the office and I was working. It was a long day. I didn't finish till, you know, six o'clock. So it did mean there was a sacrifice. The sacrifice was that I was an extremely busy, young, working mother. But it actually did help provide a stable environment for my son. And, you know, there's a lot of critics when I had had my son, a lot of people, family members who just literally wouldn't talk to me, especially because my son's mixed race as well, a lot of racism, a lot of comments like she's made her bed, she's going to lie in it. You know, in spite of that adversity, you know, um, I was determined to... to you know, not only survive, but thrive and, and to, you know, be a great mum. I mean, it's, it's so inspiring to hear this. And, you know, this is not the angle I thought we were going to start with. I thought we were going to go straight into nutrition and supplements. But I'm so glad, honestly, I'm so glad that you did because you've shown a lot of people is that there's always a way. There's all, we've always got choice and we've always got a way to step into our power, even if it feels like we're totally powerless. And then you find out that your child's got um, a learning difference, which I can assume, you know, back then was it called a learning difference. (laughs) (laughs) And um, you, you were, you were then having to like, like navigate this whole world on your own as a single parent and learn about ADHD, which is only just the, the stigma is only just being removed slightly. I mean, it's still there. So I can only imagine what it must have been like for you to have to then advocate for your son and advocate for what he needs. And can you tell me a little bit about how then you became, you know, a dietitian and neuropsychiatrist um, and why, you know, diet and nutrition and everything has become like your, your whole career now? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just want to say first and foremost, like, I salute every single mom raising a child with a neurodevelopmental difference. It is not easy at all. I don't think people understand the challenges. I mean, luckily I was young because I had lots of energy and that was important. I was able to juggle a lot and I did. I had to. I had to become a bit of a helicopter mom. Um, but it was extremely challenging and the lack of professionals, the lack of support from teachers, just constant calls being bombarded you know pick your son up come to this meeting let's discuss this it just went on and on and on to the point where I had to completely give up my job um, in real estate and everything happens for a reason you know (laughs) everything happens for a reason and you know the realization that being a this successful young working mom was never going to work and that's when I decided to attend university part-time and I was very lucky because um, if you're 21 or over you I don't know if it's still the same nowadays but you could get in on merit so I got it just because I'd actually decided to study psychology during the evening and do an AS level in psychology as a hobby just as a hobby I was was really interested in psychology I was like oh I'm gonna do this class you know up the road from me and you know and I so I had that and then I um had kind of what they call life experience so upon interview I managed to 
to gain entry and they didn't even make me do a one-year access course which was sometimes the case they make you do a one-year access course before you go to uni so I was extremely blessed that I was granted entry as a mature student and I decided to study you know and that led to as I said you know 14 years of study and it just kind of snowballed that was never the plan I just wanted to find out as a mom how I could you know best understand these neurodevelopmental differences what they meant you know, what was going on in the brain. And I began to learn that the brain is a biological organ and that basically what you ate had a huge impact on how your brain functioned at a molecular and cellular level. And that was just fascinating. And I'd noticed at home with my son that changing his diet and going back to basics completely, getting back in the kitchen and making everything from scratch, eliminating processed foods, had the biggest difference beyond methothenidate, which had given him terrible side effects. And we'd really battled with that one because actually um, a school presented me of the dilemma that you either medicate your son or we will politely ask you to withdraw him because that's what private schools love to do. So I was kind of forced to medicate him, which I didn't want to do, but I did. And Unfortunately, it just didn't work out for him. I know the brain imaging studies show that it can normalise brain function in the same way as non-diagnosed children. You know, so children without ADHD, they can actually kind of normalise brain function. And there, there are lots of positives with ADHD medications for some people. Yeah, but we have to we have to address the fact that at least. Um, a proportion of individuals are non-responders or the side effects are so severe, it's estimated that it's around one third that this happens to. The side effects are so severe that it warrants discontinuation. And also because of my, you know, nutritional, psychiatry, neuroscience training, I know that nutrients can act pharmacologically, you know, so they can act like a drug in the brain Obviously, over a much longer period of time, they don't give those instant, you know, effect sizes. And of course, an effect size for anyone listening is just um, a kind of a standard for how effective an intervention is. Uh, it's a statistical quotient, if you like. So I just want to make that clear. So when, yeah. you, when you test a nutritional medicinal product, it has an effect size. So you know how effective it is actually in reducing clinical symptoms, whether it's depression or ADHD. So the gut-brain axis, you know, we hear this a lot, um, that this is really pivotal with ADHD and nutrition and our mood regulation and cognition, that if we start, like you say, removing more of the processed food, eating cleaner foods, eating the right type of balanced protein and omega-3s, really making sure that we are kind of honing in on nutrition. And you noticing a big difference when, say, a family comes to you or a parent comes to you and you put them on a different diet protocol. Okay, so let's go kind of right back. I help parents in a diverse way. So I have Nutritious Minds Consulting, which is a clinic, which effectively sends people to um, uh, a clinic in W1 where they have a blood draw. And then I look at their personalized nutrient profile to assess for specific insufficiencies in key nutrients which regulate neurotransmitter function. So, you know, which may help contribute to the regulation of serotonin, GABA, 
dopamine, norepinephrine, and so on and so on. So first and foremost, I do that. And then simultaneously, I will take a stool sample to look at their gut health and what's going on there, because obviously the gut-brain axis is critical. Um, you know, it's a new and emerging field, and we're still learning more and more. Um, but there are research pockets all over the world now that are giving us a very good indication of the influences of our gut microbiota. Um, and I'll also look at food intolerances and food allergies, um, which is really, really important um, because... Basically, what often what's happening is that children are eating the very foods um, that they are intolerant to, promoting the growth of what we call dysbiotic or pathogenic bacteria in the gut, which are then over-colonizing and are impacting the production of specific neurotransmitters, um, which are made in the gut, and then some of which are transported into the brain. So that's really critical. And in fact, what I found over the years of collecting data in this area is that almost 100% of the families that I work with, their children present with a wide range of nutritional um, insufficiencies in key nutrients like iron, iodine, magnesium, selenium, omega-3 fatty acids, and so on, plus food intolerances, plus food allergies, as well as dysbiotic bacteria in their stool samples. So that's really important collectively because when we do that type of data collection, we have a personalized profile in terms of nutrition, what's going on. So, and then we, the great thing is we can make changes so we can improve the nutritional insufficiencies by making specific dietary recommendations. You know, you need to eat more of this food group or you need to you know, adjust that or you need to restrict your intake of ultra-processed foods. That's really, really important because a lot of people don't really understand much about the impacts of ultra-processed foods. And in fact, I have been working with a research team um, made up with um, several researchers uh, mainly from America, some of you may have heard of Dr. Robert Lustig, who wrote Metabolical. Um, he also wrote The Hacking of the American Mind. But we've been working on a project for about three years now, which has been published, and it's called The Metabolic Matrix, Re-Engineering Ultra-Processed Foods to Feed the Gut, Protect the Liver, and Support the Brain. And you can download that for free on Frontiers in Nutrition. Um, but ultra-processed foods ultimately consist of non-nutritive compounds, synthetic food additives, many of which are not regulated, like flavorings, colorings, um, preservatives, you know, synthetic emulsifiers. They often contain trans fats, refined carbohydrates, um, processed meats, excess sugar, sweetened beverages. All of these are ultra-processed foods, which are, you know, heavily industrially produced, formulations and notoriously poor food sources of um, the types of foods that we need for brain health and brain function. And we know because it's been systematic reviews in terms of outcomes and effects um, that they impact the body and the brain. They increase risk for the development, the premature development of metabolic health diseases, type 2 diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, stroke, and so on and so forth. But they also impact the brain in terms of the function and activity of the brain. And I think we have to be careful because um, ADHD, individuals of ADHD specifically, I have found within my you know, professional research that they're chasing the dopamine high. Yeah. 
exactly and it often starts when they're eight or nine with sugar addiction because they get that dopamine release and the activation of reward circuitry in the brain the ventral striatum nucleus accumbens those areas those regions are activated in the same way they are in adults taking you know cannabis cocaine marijuana nicotine alcohol and they're rewarded if you like you know for eating those junk and processed foods and that starts the binge withdraw repeat cycle of addiction that can increase and then teenage years they're experimenting you know with cannabis and and then some people with ADHD will self-medicate their entire life you know as a way of kind of normalizing their brain's biochemistry you know we're wired to seek pleasure and avoid pain but unfortunately although some of those substances like nicotine, for example, clinical trials has been shown to enhance memory. <laughs> you know, it has been shown to increase attention, but it's everything else that's, you know, doesn't that comes with the nicotine that is highly dangerous. And obviously nic- nicotine is a very addictive substance. It's very difficult to withdraw from that, um, like heroin. But, you know, individuals with ADHD have increased risks when it comes to addiction because of that dopamine release and anything that can release dopamine, whether it's, you know, social media, gaming, junk and processed food, sex can be addictive. And that's what, that's the path that you have to be careful of. It's like, almost like if you have ADHD, just be so mindful as to what you're putting in your body. And I think there's an element also of kind of like self-love and self-care there, you know, as well. And I think a lot of people with ADHD, like my son, um, have suffered from low self-esteem throughout their lives. And that lead also to harmful outcomes because you just feel shit about yourself and then you're going to do things that are going to make you feel even shittier and and that's the sad thing about it you know and I think working on yourself we're all works in progress and there's so much we need to do to keep ourselves away from harms and also kind of optimizing well-being So on the podcast, you have probably heard me talking about our nervous system quite a lot. And I work with our nervous system in all my one-to-one sessions, but also all my group coaching as well. So I'm really happy to let you know that I have a four-part workshop series called Regulating Your ADHD Nervous System. And it's all through the polyvagal lens. I recorded this a few months ago and it was a really successful coaching group. So I wanted to be able to make this available to you all as a four session series. You will get these once a week for four weeks. So it doesn't feel overwhelming and you're able to really sort of let the information integrate. So if you often feel out of control, you're easily triggered by daily stress, or perhaps you've noticed that your nervous system is always in this sort of constant state of fight or flight, this sympathetic mode, or perhaps you're just wondering how your ADHD impacts your nervous system and your daily life and would like to experience more inner calm, this is probably for you. So you'll have more clarity on what those triggers are of the feelings of anxiety and worry and the hypervigilance that impacts your mental and physical health. And you'll also gain effective daily practices designed to help you understand and regulate your own nervous system with informed and science-backed information. If this sounds like what you're looking for, head to my website. It's all there on the homepage and really just have a read through and see if it's something that you need. So it's one month of dedicating to really understanding your own nervous system and what it is that you need more of to help you feel more regulated, calm, connected and empowered head to my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk.
let's get back to the episode. I think what you're saying there about sort of the addictive part of our brain, that's we're much more prone to the addiction, is do you think that by optimising our nutrition and optimising what we put in our body, can we lessen the addictive pathways? Absolutely. I think how I describe it is the nutritional armour. You know, if you have the nutritional armour, then you're more resilient. And that's the whole field of epigenetics, which means that first and foremost, our DNA is not predictive in terms of the blueprint of our lives. So, you know, a lot of people worry naturally, you know, they, they look at their genetic inheritance, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, am I, am I going to end up an alcoholic? Or am I, I don't want to end up like my mom. And they do believe um, that their DNA has that kind of influence. And I am pleased to tell you, it does not. And we are really changing the way that we think about DNA. And anyone that feels it's entirely prescriptive in that, in that, you know, that view is outdated and arguably it's archaic. Um, and the field of epigenetics is is super empowering. Epi just means on top of or on the gene. And basically, it's important to recognize that um, the genes in the environment, so nature, nurture, nature being the DNA, nurture being the environment, is a complex interplay. They're singing and dancing together. And Professor Eric Taylor, who I worked under, who was head of child and adolescent psychiatry at King's College London, he was really the first to explain that to me. And I was like, wow, that makes total sense. And we know that nutrition is one of the most robust epigenetic neuromodulators. So it has the ability to switch on and silence genes at transcriptional levels, which is so rewarding. So we are, as humans, we are in empowered positions of agents of our own outcome in terms of adopting healthier lifestyles, increases longevity. You know, in other words, we live longer. We can manipulate our brain's biochemistry by putting in foods and nutrients, which are precursors like tryptophan, serotonin. You know, there are natural ways to seek dopamine, mm-hmm. you know, through, um, you know, the Music, diet. dance. Oh, like all, all the way through like yes exactly yeah. the movement and side that, as well that's a critical point moving and i think it's really important that stress can become imprinted in ourselves you know stress has memories um and there's that whole kind of generational trauma theory which i won't go into but um moving releases stress you know and that's really really important to make sure that we move every single day Because, you know, telling someone to reduce their stress is ridiculous. You know, you actually need to release your stress. And you heard from Emma, Movement is Medicine. This is a lot of her theory as well. You know, like release the stress by moving. And of course it does. It floods the body and brain with our natural antidepressants, a combination or a cocktail of brain boosting chemicals, our endorphins, which are, of course, the body's natural antidepressants, the serotonin, which is critical um, to have that stable feeling of contentment and well-being. It's like when you watch a sunset or a sunrise, you have that what's called qualia. It's a philosophical concept, you know, which is hard to describe. It's that just utter contentment of, you know, watching a beautiful sunrise. Um, So, yeah, the diet, of course, is really, really important. Um, But it's not just the diet because diets in general do not work. And I I think that's really important to know. You know, calorie counting as well is almost debunked completely. You know, people think it's not the quantity, it's the quality. 
the quality of the foods. And I wish people like Weight Watchers would catch up because, you know, they still allow rewards, which are alcohol and sugary treats and, you know, pizzas. That's not, food is, of course, rewarding. Healthy food is incredibly rewarding. It does release those chemicals that I've just mentioned, um, but it's also what we absorb. And that's very complex as well. And it's a, probably a whole other discussion. But just put simply, you know, like when you eat a piece of fish, for example, you not only get the omega-3s, but you also get the trace elements and you get the vitamins. And all of these work synergistically to facilitate absorption and synthesis into our red blood cells. So when you take a fish oil supplement, one gram a day of fish oil supplement, but you're eating your background diet, as I call it, is full of junk and processed foods that are going to detain lots of omega-6, for example, from soybean oil, which is infiltrated um, all of our commercially available processed supermarket foods. Omega-6 and omega-3 are going to compete for absorption and synthesis into our red blood cells. So if you've got like 12 to 17 grams of omega-6 in your diet through following a Western dietary pattern or junk and processed foods, that one gram of fish oil is not going to make a dent. It's not even going to be absorbed because the omega-6 is going to be absorbed ahead of the omega-3. So absorption is critical as well. It's like people when they take pre, uh, they take probiotics. Oh, but I take my probiotics and my gut health must be okay. Okay, well, how much dietary fiber do you have a day? You know, what's your intake of prebiotics? Because the healthy bacteria um, you know, in order to grow and multiply, they need the food. And the food is the prebiotics. It's the dietary fiber. You know, that's what enables and encourages their growth. Um, if you're eating lots of sugar and white refined foods or the beige foods, you know, like white rice, white potatoes, chicken nuggets, fries, that kind of thing, um, you're going to encourage and promote the growth of the unhealthy bacteria or the pathogenic bacteria. So that's what's important. So that my point about absorption is really, really key. You've got to look at your diet as a whole and make changes. You can't just think, oh, I'll take a couple of vitamins, but they might be synthetic. Yeah, your probiotics will be flushed straight through you because they haven't got any dietary fiber to, to, to nourish and multiply. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's, it's very, very complex. And there's lots of, with social media, so many missed messages as well, misinformation, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I feel I feel like I do need to interject there because I'm going to, on the, on the flip side, I know how hard it is as, as a parent, for sure, yes. when you've got, you know, neurodivergent children who are fussy eaters and who will only eat. And, you know, especially, you know, if there's autism in the mix with sort of, I mean, it's both with ADHD and autism, you know, the sensory and processing, like with types of food they won't eat, textures, colours. The beige foods is very typically all we can offer them. And with the sprinkling of peas or a raw carrot, and we just think we're winning. When we are dealing with that, and we are, you know, I would say, you know, I've, I've got four kids and I've gone through all of that with different kids, you know, with certain textures and foods. How do we reduce that overwhelm, reduce that, shame and guilt that oh my goodness if only I could feed my kids all these amazing foods and not worry I know it's hard not to but kind of hope that we're not causing them long-term psychological you know um, issues because we can't force our kids to eat all these amazing foods that we'd love them to eat yeah I think going forward I think things 
are slowly changing like in terms of as a young mom myself you know we would uh, I'd work all day and then we'd stop off at McDonald's and, and get a happy meal yeah and I had no idea of what that was doing to my son's brain I just didn't have the knowledge of the education I literally but I think as awareness is growing in terms of the role of nutrition in brain health uh, especially with Instagram platforms and you know um, we're being flooded with information that what we eat also impacts the brain not just the body I think as that knowledge is growing I think parents are changing um, how they feel um, about food and how important it is for their kids and their shopping lists are changing as well and I think sometimes like what I did as a parent was I had to go back to basics. Like I said, I had to start making meals from scratch. I had to put in the work to see the change. It's like when um, you're trying to make any changes, oftentimes it's going to be challenging. You know, you can't take away that and make it nice and easy and sugarcoat it. It's not going to be easy. It is challenging. And you accept the challenge and you think, okay, well, I have to have a new approach because if I can continue doing the same things over and over and over and getting the same results, then that's a type of insanity. You know, that's what Einstein said. And it's true. If I keep feeding my child, you know, Haribos and chicken nuggets and Greg sausage rolls, and they're continuing to have temper tantrums, irritability, um, mood outbursts, and they're a nightmare to control, but I keep on doing it, then I'm going to get the same results. So unfortunately, about finding novel, diverse, and creative ways. Um, you know, sometimes being a bit sneaky too. But I get the whole, you know, I had that with my daughter, and I was that child. I was that child. My mum said that I was an absolute nightmare, that I'd only eat out of a certain glass bowl. So I get that. So, you know, food avoidant, food restrictive, that goes unfortunately often hand in hand with neurodiversities there's a challenge and I it's almost like a self-medicating as well because that child is eating like dairy which they may be intolerant to they're eating elevated amounts of sugar because they're getting those dopamine highs and they're actually creating like dysbiotic guts you know through the foods that they are selecting so I think it's all about understanding the relationships identifying uh, nutrient insufficiencies looking at food intolerances looking at food allergies and starting again and and saying to your child we're going to make some changes and this is why and talking to them being open and honest you know like I think you know at the end of the day parents buy the food parents are providing the foods and I understand that argument because I've been there as a parent oh he'll only eat chicken nuggets well if there are no chicken nuggets what are they going to eat or make your own chicken nuggets, make them healthier. Yeah, that's what I used to do with my son, you know, we'd get the flour and the eggs and, and the chicken and we'd dip them in each and we'd, we'd make them us, we'd make our own pizzas, we'd just switch the ingredients, make them healthier. Kids love being in the kitchen, give them an apron and the chef's hat, you know, and also like buy them books that explain about the origin of food, you know, take them to farms, like there is so much we can do, like, you know, grow some vegetables at home get some seed boxes so it's about changing relationships it's about making changes which is yes it is uncomfortable and yes unfortunately we can think of every reason why we shouldn't be doing something but ultimately I've worked with so many parents and so many parents have successfully implemented these changes and it's just about putting a different hat on and say okay I'm gonna have to do things differently now let's think about how I can do this
and make it a success. Yeah. And that's really, really helpful. And I know in your book, it's got loads of fantastic recipes. It's got loads of ideas. I mean, we could be here all day, you know, <laughs> talking about the different food groups and, and the different types of substitutes that we can be bringing in, healthier substitutes. But your book does that brilliantly, which is why I think it should be, you know, in every person's household who, if they've got, uh, if they're neurodivergent themselves or with kids, because even if we just remove a certain few foods and add in a few extra foods without it making it too overwhelming, thinking that we've got to change everything all at once, just these few tweaks a day could really help. Um, and I have definitely seen that with, with my kids as well. Like one, the big tweak that I've made with my youngest daughter who's eight, I buy a yogurt, a Greek yogurt, um, no sugar, um, high fat, the, the high protein yogurt. And instead of her having one of the, you know, the sweetened ones, I just put a little bit of honey in and she has that and she has that. She always likes it sort of as a dessert before bed. And she's really happy with that. And sometimes, you know, I say to her, right, you can have a little bit of dark chocolate with that. And so that is, I'm like, okay, I'm happy. Like she wants something a little bit sweet. At least I know how much honey I'm putting in. At least it's a dark chocolate and it's not a milk chocolate. So we don't have to be perfect. It can yeah. just be a tweak that's just significantly better than, you know. Make fun, you know, like get, get, you know, ask your child if they want to help develop a puree, you know, like put some blueberries or strawberries or her favourite berries into a blender and put some, drizzle some puree into the yoghurt as well, the Greek yoghurt, or melt the dark chocolate. Make it fun, you know. It's like... There's, there's cacao nibs that you can buy. You know, there's all sorts of things. Chia seeds, they're actually quite nice and crunchy. Some kids really enjoy them. You can add them into the Greek yogurt. A little bit of, uh, you know, quarter of a teaspoon of Manuka honey I love. And so there's all sorts of things we can do. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So you know, just before we finish, I wanted to just quickly go back to what we were just talking about with regards to epigenetics and how you've got an article, I know that you've got it near you, that is talking about um, how ADHD is an epigenetic manifestation. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. There's research, there's research going on, but it's, it's emerging research. Yeah. But I do feel like it's really empowering, you know, for us to know this and to know that it can feel almost like you say you know, at the very beginning of the, the podcast, it's really hard work being a parent with neurodevelopmental differences. And it can feel really difficult, you know, if you're a single parent, if you have got very little time to deal with all of this. But when we now learn there's new research coming out that we can, like you say, we can change our nutrition, we can change the way certain tweaks to our lifestyle to sleep. You've worked in this this area for a really long time now. You know, you've dedicated a big chunk of your career to this. Would you say that this new emerging research is a positive in this area? Would you say this is something that we should be grateful to hear? Yeah, absolutely. I I really do. In fact, let me just tell you a little bit about what the research says. New research is emerging, um, suggesting that ADHD may be an epigenetic manifestation. And obviously, we know that over the last three decades alone, there have been so many advances in terms of the neuroscientific literature, imaging data, genetic data, and so on. And I've always stressed the point that um, you know, genes in the environment don't work in isolation, they work together. Um, and ADHD, the phenomenon of ADHD has grown and grown and grown. And now in this new article that I read today um, by Joel Nick, and others also subscribe to this notion, is that ADHD is 
he says, primarily a a disorder of self-regulation. He says that self-regulation weaves together all the older theories of ADHD into one cohesive picture. It's what allows humans to manage impulses, engage or disengage attention, navigate between deliberate and automatic responses to different situations, and that the ability to self-regulate is managed across the brain in highly interconnected ways, which we know about that. The brain doesn't work in isolation. All these theories about that's the part of the brain that does that. No, actually, your brain is like a, a super highway um, information network. You know, it's like a supercomputer, basically, and it doesn't work in isolation in specific regions. It works interconnectedly, and we know that. So this is what he's saying. So... He is saying that um, obviously there are parts of the brain that help regulate both attention and emotion. Um, But the newest theories are suggesting um, it isn't just a, and I don't like that word disorder, but that's what's commonly used, of the prefrontal cortex, for example, which helps manage what's called higher order executive functioning. So it enables individuals to plan ahead Um, to regulate their emotions, to solve problems, you know, that forward thinking. And that's why um, ADHD does have this kind of cognitive control difficulties between different systems of the brain, like the limbic system, which is concerned with impulsive, novel, risk-taking behaviours. And the frontal cortex is the rational part that often weighs in the impulsive actions and says, hey, you know, think about this first. Whereas the limbic system, which ignites during puberty, is all about, let's do this. Wouldn't it be fun if we did that? And then the frontal cortex, which doesn't finish developing until we're about 23, hence why in some instances, teenagers with ADHD get into all sorts of bother, perhaps, you know, doing impulsive actions, which, you know, force them into the criminal justice system, other situations, including, you know, um, teenage pregnancy um, and so on. So there are those increased uh, risks um, attached, but we know there is some genetic susceptibility for genetic inheritance. Some have estimated these at ridiculously high uh, percentages, like almost 90%. um, Whereas others have been more conservative and said, no, actually, the genetic inheritance of ADHD is more like 70%. Yeah. So there's a sizable version um, that is the influence of the environmental factors. And of course, there are many different environmental factors. You know, there's trauma, we touched on that briefly, there's toxicity, exposure to toxins, there's infections, there's nutritional deprivation, there's physical trauma. You know, there's a whole range of different environmental factors which contribute to um, influencing the development of the baby's brain, you know, like neurogenesis, embryogenesis, which occurs um, in the womb and continues postnatally. So he is saying that epigenetics plays a much bigger role and that self-regulation component relies on epigenetics. So I think um, epigenetics is super empowering because, as I mentioned earlier, nutrition um, has been defined as an epigenetic neuromodulator. So that means, in a way, it's like, okay, you have genes in your family for schizophrenia, perhaps, or genes that are linked to schizophrenia because there is not one gene that causes schizophrenia. There is not one gene that causes ADHD. That's really, really important. And, um, you know, 
But if you eat healthily, you exercise on a regular basis, you have a great support network, everything is managed, well managed in your life, you have a great family structure, then that gene, you know, may remain silent. And it's almost like, okay, you have you have a susceptibility towards schizophrenia. Um, and you lose your job, you know, you can't pay your rent, you become homeless, you start self medicating with alcohol and drugs, you know, that gene's activated. Now you're showing you know, signs of prodromal schizophrenia, or you're becoming psychotic. So, you know, that's how I how I can um, perhaps give an example. But epigenetics is the fact that you, as a human being, have the ability to decide which things in your life are serving you and which things no longer serve you. And in fact, causing you, you harm, you have anxiety, you're, you know, you've got low mood, you're fatigued, you have low energy. So what can you do about this? Because there are always things you can do. And, and um, you know, I help families in a, in a wide range of ways, whether that's acting as a professional liaison to stop that child getting excluded. It's helping a parent getting an education healthcare plan. It's giving nutritional advice. It's going into schools at coffee morning, giving talks. Um, you know, all of this is really, really imp- important. And, I hope that my future uh, will enable me to help more and more families because a lot of um, the breakdown of systems are due to a lack of knowledge and um, that has to change. Yeah. You know, I think it's time for change in terms of how we treat children with ADHD. You know, um, It's time to change in terms of our ignorance towards differences yeah. And I think these conversations, you know, the, for this podcast, you know, if somebody has just taken one thing from it and they're able to pass that on or remove the the self-blame and the feeling that they've been responsible for something. Um, I think, you know, these conversations are vital. And I just wanted to thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your insights and all your expertise in this area, because um, it's incredible. And I, and I know just from reading your book, I've had lots of ideas sort of, you know, for different um, dietary interventions for, you know, adding different things for my kids and for me and all the supplements as well. And it's all in there. And I'm going to send people to your website as well. I just want to just finish off by saying, um, please celebrate difference. Difference is something to be celebrated. Without difference, everything is the same. And sameness is boring. So celebrate that difference. Um, Yeah, you can find me at nutritious underscore minds. I'm most active on Instagram. I do have several websites. Just literally go to Google, type in Dr. Rachel Gao or uh, nutritious Minds and nu- Nutritious Minds Consulting will pop up, nutritiousminds.org will pop up, and Dr. Rachel Gow will pop up. I'm also on LinkedIn as well. So. Fantastic. Okay, well, I will make sure all that information is on the show notes. Dr. Rachel Gow, thank you so much um, for all of this. Thank you so much, Kate. Really enjoyed talking with you today. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did and it resonated with you, I would absolutely love it if you could share on your platforms or maybe leave a review and a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And please do check out my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk for lots of free resources and paid for workshops. I'm uploading new things all the time and I would absolutely love to see you there. Take care and see you for the next episode. Just a quick reminder that I have built a library resource on the website, which is adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. And I am creating a, a hub for you to be able to look for all different types of resources, online workshops. I've got the hormone series, which has now been broken down into individual workshops, which range from thriving with ADHD post-diagnosis, how to avoid burnout. I've got something called the ADHD Holistic Starter Kit, which is three workshops shops in one. I've got things about managing your ADHD nervous system and a three-hour tapping into your ADHD gold workshop. I am trying so hard to curate a, a list of different workshops so when you are not getting the help and the support you want from maybe resources locally that you're able to go onto the website and really find what resonates with you right here right now. It's all there and I've tried to make this as accessible as cost-effective as possible for you because this is all about awareness, empowering, helping you advocate for yourself and get the information that you all deserve. So it's all there on my website adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. Now back to the episode.